Welcome back. Today, Tim and I are joined by our sometimes co-host, Dwayne Newstater. And for a guest, we have good friend of Dwayne, Bob Sontag. In this episode, we discuss urban identity, living off-grid, natural living and being in touch with nature, and the infamous hole-in-the-wall story. Thanks for joining us, and enjoy. format so all right here we are here we are again here we are i think you guys should have a contest to decide what you're going to name this thing yeah that's what we're still working on the podcast is yet to be named i don't know what to i don't know what to call it actually a pretty good name i think I feel like that name works well. <laughs> you know, it's, it's probably one of those things like, you know, you call your dog dog because you can't decide on his name. And then before you know it, his name's dog. Like, what's your dog's yeah. name? Dog. Eh, that's fair enough. You know, it's like it's descriptive. It's, you know, it it's works. Accurate. There's no doubt. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. But anyway, uh, thanks for coming on, Bob. Do appreciate it. Uh, looking forward to, to meeting you and chatting with you and getting some inside scoop on on Twain. I don't I will see that, but yeah, I'll let, I kind of let Dwayne start off since uh, you know he his it was his idea to have you on, and we'll go from there. Okay, yeah, well, welcome, Bob. I'm really glad you took the time to uh, to do this, and we're willing to take the time. Uh, I truly do believe it's our most valuable resource that any of us are given is is the gift of time, and and how we use it is pretty important. So. Thank you, first of all, for sharing it with us. And um, well, it's my pleasure. It's my pleasure, Dwayne and, and and Tony and Tim. There's nothing I like better than talking about myself, as you'll find out. <laughs> so uh, the only thing maybe more funny than that would be talking about Dwayne. So uh, either way, whatever you want to talk about, I'm game. Sounds good. Yeah, you we'll know, do both. There is plenty of things to talk about. You know, like I, I think back to. The adventures or misadventures, I'm not sure which you would call it, the, you know, probably the one of the most memorable, which was immortalized in photograph and you made an epitaph of, of, uh, or uh, a, uh, a wall hanging to memorialize the event. But um, that, that, was, that, was, that, was, that was memorable, to say the least. Um, but maybe uh, just tell us in a bit about your, you know, who you are, where you're from. I wrote that little... Very brief <laughs> description, but uh, you know, I think that's uh, that's always good. Just to how you define or describe yourself would be interesting. Well, Your journey thus far. Uh, sure, I'm uh, 62 years old, newly retired. Sold my business uh, coming on two years ago. Was in the farm equipment manufacturing business for 35 years in Saskatchewan, Canada. And uh, traveled all over the world, and in especially through the United States, uh, selling farm equipment or selling iron, as we always would say in that industry. Uh, love the outdoors, um, and uh, love outdoor adventures of all kinds. So uh, I now live uh, winters in the U.S. down here in Kansas City. And summers in uh, near Calgary, Alberta. So that's kind of where I'm at. Right on. So what took you to the land of the free and the brave? 
Oh man. Um, <laughs> when I started working, uh, for the farm equipment business, my, actually my father-in-law's business, which I ended up buying and, and owning, uh, my first job was to develop sales down in the U S. So I started traveling all through the U S in about 1985 and just came to love it. And, uh, over the years I've, I've learned, uh, more about the similarities and the differences between Canada and the U S I love it down here. I feel really free down here. Uh, I always used to say that in Canada, I felt safe. And in America, I felt free. Uh, and I'd say that's never more true than it is now. In Canada, I don't feel very safe anymore either, uh, just with what's happened in the last year. But we won't get in too much into politics. But um, I'll, I'll, I'm, I'll always be first and foremost Canadian. But I married an American girl about uh, three years ago. And uh, so... Uh, we're, we're down here at least, at least half time now. So uh, that's how I ended up down in Kansas city, but uh, Tony and Tim, you guys are, are down in the States here, right? Yeah. yeah I'm i uh, I'm in the Southeastern part of Pennsylvania outside of Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Uh-huh. I'm in the Northwest corner of Connecticut, Connecticut, Good old Connecticut. Yeah. Yeah. Old Bobby thought in the Carolinas so made a mistake there. Yeah. Can any good thing come out of Connecticut? No, we're just we're just the highway between New York and uh, Boston. Yeah. <laughs> it's like one of the most expensive states to live in, and you wouldn't think that until you go there and buy something. Like, oh my God, like what mm-hmm. the hell happened to me? Like, it, like gas prices shoot through. Isn't Connecticut the the first state with any kind of arbiter licensing? Or credentialing and the highest concentration of arbors per capita of anywhere in the world that I think the state of Connecticut is. Or is I, have no, I have no idea if that's true or not. It's the t- <laughs> There's definitely it's a market there. for it. Yeah, but correct, correct. The market for it, yeah. Well, Dwayne ought to know he's a real numbers guy. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Not. <laughs> really. I would say I'm more of a memorizing weird. Facts and figures, guy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think our facts and figures might be a better way to put it. Yeah. Yeah, to be determined if they're true. An almost photographic memory that is prone to flaws. <laughs> <laughs> the almost part is very important. It's a photographic selective memory with a broken lens. Memory. Yeah, yeah, I have a selective photographic yeah, changing like memory. Yeah, the part of Connecticut that I live in is the the northwest corner, which the rest of Connecticut is very much a highway through uh, between Boston and, and New York. But the northwest corner is like the beginning of the Berkshires, and we have the Appalachian Trail, and it's uh, it's a, it's actually a really nice spot. It's uh, I describe Connecticut as like down by the coast in like Greenwich. Everybody knows Greenwich, Connecticut, is like one of the wealthiest towns in the world, or whatever. And that's very much like, hey, look at how much money I have, the big house in your face and the Lamborghinis in the driveway and stuff. And then, but that in my mind is, that's new money. That's like, look at me. Then the Northwest corner, like the clients that I have and where we live is like old money. And it's like, you know, we'll be driving through the, 
you know, a farmland and there'll be this mile long driveway with a very inconspicuous sign. And it's like, don't come down here. Nobody lives down here. Don't look over here. And then you drive down the driveway and there's a staff of 12 taking care of this estate. And it's, <laughs> you know, so it's, it's, uh, it's the country up here. It's, I like this spot. It's a great place to be an arborist. The urbanization of America is a very interesting historical phenomenon. Um, uh, in the past, America was always, you know, highly rural, and it had a certain national character. And over the last century, there was a tipping point where it became an urban nation. And, of course, that's where the power resides then is wherever the population is and the voting and all that stuff. And so, you know, America is now probably, I don't know, I'm just pulling numbers out of the air, probably 80% urban but in every state in the union, there's still a large area of rural country and people live everywhere, every nook and cranny, every piece of woods and bush and swamp. There's there's people living out there and they retain this love of the outdoors and freedom and hunting and uh, the desire for independence. And those values are alive and well in every state and, and as well as Canada. But, of course, it's a, it's a small fraction of the population overall, but it's definitely a, a strong uh, cultural norm uh, out where, where we live. Yeah, I remember before COVID, I would uh, always be out in the woods and hiking, and you'd see some people, you know, it just made me think of this where you're talking about that, that, that love of nature and being outdoors and before COVID I'd be in the woods and I always used to think, man, how come, like, how come everyone's not out here doing this? You know, like, why isn't everybody outside enjoying nature? How do they, the woods should be filled with people. And then COVID happened. And then now the woods are filled with people. And I'm like, man, everyone needs to go back in their house and play video games or something. Get out of here. Get out of here. (laughs) These are my woods. To your point, to your point, Bob. One of my favorite William, whether my favorite ways to describe Pennsylvania was a William Buckley quote, and he said it's basically Philadelphia on the east, Pittsburgh on the west, with Alabama in between. And it's mm-hmm. so true. I mean, it's so true. There's parts of Pennsylvania that are like you know people were border West Virginia, and I got good friends that live in West Virginia. We make fun of them down there about you know family trees like a telephone pole. But there's parts of Pennsylvania that will just like West Virginians won't go in, and it's like oh lord. And then you know you can be downtown. And Maryland's another funny one because most of Maryland is beautiful. You know, western part of Maryland, it's like once you get on the other side of the bay, it's mountainous and it's gorgeous. But you get that Washington, D.C., Annapolis right on the Bay Area, and it's just it's just not the same state. It's just, you know, not culturally, not, you know, physically. You know, it's just it's very, very different. And it's funny how that you get those. It's funny how the population centers, of course, you know, sort of. That's what everybody sees, but no one sees the, you know, I don't know how many people have come visit me here in Pennsylvania. Like I was driving through Pennsylvania. I didn't realize you had so many mountains. It's like, well, yeah, it's right in the middle of the Appalachians, like right through the middle. You know, it looked probably looked a lot like Calgary, like 7 million years ago. You know, (laughs) people think about uh, New York, you know, they think about Manhattan. My, my favorite cousin lives in, lives about 20 miles outside of Rochester, New York, which is upstate New York. And he's about the closest thing I've ever met to Ted Nugent. 
He's a bow hunter and a, just an outdoorsman. He's a construction contractor and he's about as rural as you can get. And, um, but he lives in New York. Okay. Well, it's New York state, but, uh, he's about as far removed from Manhattan as you can be. So it's just part of the national character. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny people. Yeah. Someone say, yeah, I'm from, you know, I'm like, so like, yeah, I'm from Pennsylvania. Oh, I have a cousin who lives in Pittsburgh. Do you know? I'm like, no, there's like 11 million people in this state. Like how would I, know? Oh, I'm from New York. Oh, I know a guy who lives. In, it's like, like there's 7 million people in the New York, greater New York area. Like it's just funny. It is funny. People kind of, they, they identify with that big population center and, and it's just, it's just weird. It's not, it's not really the character of the state at all. It's just the character of what you see on TV or the way that things get voted or, you know, the people you put in mm-hmm. office or whatever, but it's not, it's not the character of the, of the state. It's why it's kind of fun to make fun of like Connecticut that way. It's like, it's not the, you know, it is basically Tim's description is pretty apt. It a lot in many ways, it's a highway between New York and Boston, but that's not the character of the state, you know? Mm-hmm. You know, you know, when I started traveling more and I've been to most and trained in most of the States of the union, there's with few exceptions and, you know, and then by the nature of the work we do, we're always in in more rural park type areas. Just park, even in the urban area, we would be that way. But it always. I remember when we did training for New York State Department of Transportation, and we were training up by Syracuse, and we were in a place called Utica, and it was central, right? And we had guys from Long Island, Staten Island, from the Bronx, and we had guys from Rochester and from. Buffalo, you know, was like, and they were, I mean, you had every, you had the cigar smoking, talking out of the side of their, you know, like as just as you can get New York to, you think they were just regular, you know, farming dudes. It was bizarre. It was my first real exposure to the vast difference. And it's all in the same state. Oh, guys had to take a damn ferry from Long Island and drive four and a half hours to get up to Utica <laughs> or five or whatever. Right. Long drive, right? Yeah, you could be like six hours removed from New York City and still be in New York. Yeah. You know, it's interesting <laughs> I, I, when I, I've traveled around the world and wherever I go, whenever people say, like, oh, where are you from? You know, if you're in Morocco and you say Connecticut to someone, they're like, what? You know, but everyone knows New York City. So it's like I always just tell people, oh, I live near New York. But always the reaction in, uh, is people say, oh, my God, New York. One day I dream of going there. It's, oh, I just, I want to go so bad. The whole world wants, everyone wants to go there. My, I'm always like, why? <laughs> I'm like, it's an hour and a half for me. And it's just like I go there like if I have to. But but this the it's interesting the power that that city has, you know, just emotionally for people from seeing it in movies and just, you know, all the different displays and the ideas that people have of it. And my perspective after traveling a bunch of the city is a city wherever you go. I don't care. Yeah. There's some interesting stuff about it, but Bangkok is the same to me as New York city. And there's interesting intricacies of them, but I'm, I want to get in the mountains. I want to get out of the city and into the, you know, get me out of here, you know? I would, I would propose, though, that, you know, some of the things you guys talk about, um, as in listening, you know, like when you're out in the woods and you're just calming yourself and listening, uh, these are skills 
that really serve you well, whether you're out in the woods or in the city. If uh, you can sort of be quiet and sort of observe your environment, you can very quickly blend in and people will not necessarily know that you're some redneck from the sticks. Whereas a lot of city folks, they're so, uh, I would say, wired up and stressed out all the time. When they get out to the country, they stick out like a sore thumb because it's like they, they can't cope without that sort of massive high energy input all the time. So I think that country folks have an advantage over city folks in that we can be mindful and kind of know when to shut up and listen. <laughs> yeah. Or see the, uh, the wisdom in it or the, uh, the almost a preservation tactic, uh, you know, uh, that serve you well. I, I uh, we keep on this hitting on this theme, and it's ironic, you know, when, Tim, when you first talked about the driveway and the driveway to nowhere, sort of like, and it, you know, I was, you know, thinking it would be interesting to listen to Bob's perspective on that, and and even now with what we've talked about as far as choosing where to live and how to live, because you know, I I actually don't know, I don't think I know anyone, Bob, other than yourself, who's actually. You know, people talk about it and want to do it. Like, I want to live off the grid. I want to have be fully self-supporting. And and you actually have done it more than once. And you actually did it successfully for quite a long period. And and you currently have a little driveway that goes a long driveway into nowhere into an amazing facility. And uh, I, I I've alluded to a little bit with these guys, but maybe you want to. Enlighten us on that journey and that decision, like even the the first place in St. Brew and everything else. Oh, man. How much time have you got? (laughs) Um, I was was actually raised in Vancouver, B.C., which is kind of like the San Francisco of Canada. I mean, it's about as urban as you can get. When I was a kid, it was a pretty cool town. It was an industrial city full of sawmills, but by the time I grew up, it had become like I said, the San Francisco of Canada. But it could—it's actually more like Hong Kong. Like it's a major metropolis. And fortunately, I had an uncle who was a dairy farmer, so I could go out there on the weekends and get a sort of have a retreat. Uh, was actually raised by single mom in the middle of the worst neighborhood in Vancouver a place called Surrey. Uh, just look it up on Facebook. Look, look up a, a website or a, a Facebook page called only in Surrey. And you'll see where I was raised. Horrible place. <laughs> <laughs> we just laugh about it now. But, uh, as Later in life, I had the opportunity, uh, married a girl from Saskatchewan, and we ended up in Saskatchewan for 35 years, which is kind of like Western Kansas. You know, there's not a tree or a, a power pole uh, anywhere in, in, in sight, a flat horizon. And I really learned how to love the, the countryside. I ended up traveling all over the, the country uh, selling farm equipment for my father-in-law. And um, make a long story short, 
one of the things I always dreamed of was having my own place, having a place, my own land that I could call my own and that I could decide, like I could do whatever I wanted. Nobody could tell me what to do. Nobody could, you know, tell me I was making too much noise or I couldn't shoot my rifle or I, you know, whatever. And I uh, looked for quite a few years for a piece of property and I wanted to locate in the foothills of the Rocky Mountains west of Calgary. And I'd tell you more about where it is, but then I'd have to kill you because it's a top secret location. And uh, after several years of looking, I finally, I was looking for something like, you know, I thought at least it's got to be at least 10 acres, maybe 20 acres. And um, finances are always an issue. And I finally found a piece of land that looked really promising, but it was 160 acres. It was a quarter section and it was a lot of money. And I thought, holy crap, I don't think I can afford this. But I went out to have a look at it. And I was thinking today, you know, what I was going to talk about when I talked to you guys. And I just got to tell you one story. I went out to look at this piece of property and there was nothing on it. It was a literally a mud track that had been just driven through the woods into this property and like four-wheel drive only to get into this place i drove in there with my four-wheel drive pickup and just looked around there was a little five acre clearing of grass in the middle of 160 acres of woods and mountain and i thought this is promising like this this is promising but man it's uh you know, it's pretty remote. It has it has all the qualifications. Like the, the first thing I wanted was to, to have a place where, if I built something there, you couldn't see it from the road. Is it just it would be invisible to the world? Of course, that was before Google Satellite, right? Of course, now everybody can see whatever I'm doing out there. You know, they, I was very disappointed when Google did a did another overflight and got more detail on my places. Like shit, now they can see my container shed out there. Fuck, you know. So, anyways, uh, but I went out there to look at this property, and I just started hiking around in the woods with my dogs. And uh, there was this sort of trail that was just sort of a deer trail through the woods. I started walking, and just to see what it was like. And all of a sudden, overhead, this big brown owl just goes right overhead and just lighted on this tree branch up ahead of me, completely silent. Like, I don't know if you've ever seen an owl fly, but they're completely silent. And then right behind it was another one, a big brown owl, and they landed side by side on this tree, and they're looking at me. And they're just... They're the biggest birds I'd ever seen. Like, they were huge. I don't want to exaggerate, but, I mean, it was huge. And they're looking at me, and they're kind of going, like, what up, dude? You know? And I'm like, I got to I gotta have this place. I got to own this place. Like, I don't care what it costs. This is, this, this is my place, and these are my people, right? So, uh, anyway, that's, that, it was like a sign from God to me. Like, this is, this is exactly what I want. And since then, of course, I've made friends with all of the residents. I got bears, I got cougars, I got, um, 
uh, every type of wildlife, elk, moose, you name it, they're all out there. And I call it, uh, I call my place Serenity Valley. Anybody who's a science fiction um, fan will know that's from the TV series Firefly. Uh, Serenity Valley is where Captain Malcolm uh, fought the last great battle of the Great Rebellion War. And uh, that's, uh, that's what I call it. But I've owned it for about eight years. And uh, it's uh, completely changed my life. And it's kind of like my spiritual retreat. And then you've uh, occupied it and made it very comfortably dwellable, I would say. <laughs> well, now, sure. Uh, yeah. It's, um, there was nothing there. First thing I had to do was build a, find a guy to, to help me build a, a road in there. Uh, so we found a, a, a gravel deposit on the land. Had to look around a little bit and find some gravel to, to put down the road, built a road in there over top of the old dirt track that was there. And um, then I built a container shed, which is just yeah. two double stack containers, uh, 40 foot containers. And then you just build a wall front and back and uh, you got some, some storage and a place to park uh, vehicles and, you know, I, I, I bought a, uh, an army ambulance. Uh, I had a friend in Germany who uh, bought me one of these Unimogs, which, had a, which was a, a German army ambulance, and we imported it into Canada. So I, I brought that onto the land, and I slept in that thing. Me and my dogs slept in that thing inside the container shed for about three years and uh so we started off pretty rough but uh little by little you know you clear some brush and you make some trails and you uh level an area that you can you can build on and two years ago we finally built a cabin out there i call it a cabin but it's more like a big shop it's about uh 40 by 75 or something like that it's a pole shed very inexpensive uh, just on a slab and uh, two big garage bays. And then the third garage bay is a living quarters with a little loft in it. Uh, very basic, very inexpensive. And um, all that we need, very simple. Uh, I'd like to hear the description of your water system. Hmm. And like even how the overflow works and how much... What did you like? Seven thousand liters or something? <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, the first thing first thing I had to do when I built the container shed, uh, my business was a steel fabrication company, so I could build stuff out of steel pretty easily. And um, so we built a platform on top of this container shed that uh, so I could mount solar panels and uh one of the really cool things that's happened in the world in the last 20 years is the cost of an independent power system has come down literally 75 percent 
you can you can now buy solar panels and a little uh, power system inverter and batteries and run your own independent power system completely off the grid for somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 grand and you'd have all the power you need um, for living off the grid and that is a huge breakthrough for people that uh, want to live independently so i was able to do that and um you know you have to, the advent of things like led lights and uh, high efficiency pumps and stuff make it much more viable than it used to be so i have in-floor heat in the in the concrete slab underneath my uh my building and an outdoor boiler so i heat everything with wood and of course out in the woods there you got you know I, i've never had to cut a tree down yet i mean you just you just uh, burn deadfall and uh it's it's fantastic um and what did you ask i mean i'm i'm, I'm rambling here water. Water. oh the water uh, oh yeah well that's kind of a funny story um i was in my in my office in saskatchewan one day and some of my sales guys were talking about water witching and uh they were talking about how they thought maybe they could divine water and i don't know if you guys know what i'm talking about yeah people yeah. That, people that think they can uh find water by using two sticks or whatever mm -hmm. and so they're talking about out there and i can hear them from my office and i'm thinking like why don't you guys just get back to work like you know what are we talking about so they they go out in the shop and they make themselves two metal rods out of you know one eighth inch wire or whatever and they're out on the front lawn trying to witch water and uh we've got this irrigation system like you know underground sprinklers on our front lawn and they're not having any luck so finally they come into my office and say bob you need to come out and see if you could if you can be a water witch and i said oh this is all bullshit, you guys like there there's just this is all ridiculous it's like get back to work and they said no no we you need to try this so i said okay all right if it'll get you guys back to work i will try it so i go out on the front yard and they said hang on hang on we're gonna we're gonna turn on the sprinklers so that there's going to be lines here that are going to have water running in them and we're going to blindfold you and then you walk around and see if you can find where the water lines are so they put these rods in my hand and i'm like this is just this is the stupidest thing i've ever done in my life and i'm sure they're filming and I'm, they're going to make a fool out of me right everybody likes to make an idiot out of the boss right and uh, start walking around the front lawn and all of a sudden these lines these two metal rods just cross and i'm like this is just ridiculous like you know and they all just all these guys are there's like four guys are in this school whoa whoa what happened there i'm like nothing this is stupid so i back up and they they go apart and i walk forward and they cross I'm like, okay, this is ridiculous. This is, you know, this is a fluke. I said, turn on a different circuit, you know, 
like let the let the water go over over on that side or whatever and then spin me around and we'll do this again well anyway i learned that i'm a water witch and make a long story short so fast forward to uh my my place out in the mountains and I still kept these two metal rods that they made 10 years ago. And I thought, oh, maybe the day will come when I get, which, which it will. So anyway, I go up the hill from my, where I was planning to build this cabin and I start walking around and all of a sudden these, these wires cross again. And I think, okay, this is the spot. This is the spot where I'm going to dig this well. And, uh, sure enough, when the time came to dig, well, I got my buddy that helped me build the, the road in, and he dug a hole, and literally eight feet down, he finds standing water. And uh, so he, he digs me a big pit there, and we line it with gravel. We put a, uh, a four-foot cul- vertical culvert down full of holes and then f- put gravel all around it. So I have this virtually limitless well up the hill we ran a four inch uh plastic line down the hill from there to the site where i'm going to build the cabin and we dug a five thousand gallon cistern into the side of the hill so it's a gravity fed well that uh generates virtually unlimited water and uh it's just the most perfect water you could ever imagine. It's uh, got virtually no solids in it. And, uh, you know, it's perfect. And uh, so I I pump out of that cistern for the house and uh, irrigate my garden with it and irrigate my grass or whatever I want. And then it overflows in the spring into a pond where you have, right? Yeah, when we built the the road in, we dug a bunch of gravel uh, to build the road, which we ended up with a big pit there. And it was, of course, in the wrong wrong place. So a little bit further up the road, we dug a big pond and used all the, 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 the fill that came out of that pond to fill in the, the hole where the gravel was. So now I got a pond out there and I run the overflow down to that pond. So the pond stays nice and fresh and it always flows and uh, it's really pretty nice, and if it gets too full in the spring, it's got a little overflow and it got a little stream and everything. So it all worked out. When you bought the place, did you uh, do you live there full time? Is this some? This is just like a kind of a vacation spot that you go to, or how often are you there? How much time do you spend? It started in this place? out. It started out as a retreat, you know, just a place to go. We had a place in town as well. But this last year, uh, we actually sold our place in town. And, um, of course, I spent most of the year down here this year because I'm trying to get my green card. And uh, so I can travel back and forth more easily. But uh, now it's the only place I own in Canada. So the plan is to live there full time in the summer, probably six months a year, and then down here in the winter. That's very cool. Yeah. You know, and it's interesting because water and power, you know, like it's for me to think about uh, heat and water, like a pretty, you know, if you're going to go off grid, those are two pretty primary items that you're going to think about in electricity, right? Like, and, you know, that's, 
it's I think so many people take these kinds of especially speaking of city dwellers, you know, like, you know, they take for granted maybe going to the store and that's where, you know, meat comes from, let alone where does energy and water, you know, come from, uh, you know, such incredibly necessary and valuable resources that, you know, if you ever were to experience like that type of experience, hunting, camping, certainly living off grid, you know, these become, learn a little bit about those pretty quick, <laughs> the significance of them. There's, there's certain basic needs that we have, the first one being shelter, right? And, and as you guys know, shelter can be pretty basic. You know, if you can stay w relatively warm and dry, you can live pretty simply. You know, <laughs> after that is water and, um, and food, some kind of food. Uh, and if you can hunt, you can eat. Uh, yep. If you can, if you can garden a little bit, you can eat pretty good. Uh, <laughs> I guess if you're if you're thinking, you know, a lot of guys when they think about living off the grid or living out in the woods, you got to sort of think about what it, what do you, what your goals are. Do you want to live there part time? Do you want to have a retreat? Do you want to live there full time? Do you want to be able to survive the zombie apocalypse? Like, you know, what is it that you want to do? And Keep your goals in mind, and uh, it helps not to be in a rush. It helps to plan things out a little bit, and uh, and kind of focus your your priorities. And it's, it's been a ten year journey now for me. Like it, it didn't happen overnight, and uh, it takes time to to build these things. Did you see when you got there the first time? Was there other water, like visible water, that you knew that you were going to be able to find water on the property? There was a water course, but it was very seasonal. Uh, you could see that there had that there was water that would run in the spring. Uh, Canada is very like the seasons are very um, uh, exaggerated. Up there, like in the winter, it's really cold and really snowy for a long time, and then spring yep. comes fast, and there's a huge runoff, and then it gets pretty hot for a couple of months, and then, you know, uh, it's not like Florida where it's, you know, the same all year round. Uh, so you could see that there was there had been, there was water courses that would run in the spring, but then they would dry up in the summer. So I knew there was water, but it's a matter of saving and and tapping into it. So was it a bit of a gamble, though? That because I mean, you could always drill a well. I don't think it was much of a gamble. I think it was pretty. Hmm, that's a really good question. I guess intuitively, I kind of figured that there had to be water there, and if there's seasonal water, you can save it. You can always you can always dig yourself a cistern, and that takes a little bit of money. Like I I told you, I had a five thousand gallon cistern. That's a big honking cistern. That's like a that's like a twenty foot diameter by sixteen foot high concrete cistern, and like I mean I don't know what it cost me probably twelve grand or something, so I mean it's not something that you undertake lightly. I knew I had to save save that water, so it's the same with power. Um, it's not so much the ability to generate the resource as it is to to conserve it and save it. So a cistern to save water batteries to save power that's more important really than the ability to generate it is how do you how do you 
save it and use it when you need it. When it, when it comes to the batteries and the solar, like, did you have a fundamental, uh, I mean, more than a fundamental idea of how that all worked beforehand, or was this like uh, learn as you go? Well, Dwayne mentioned briefly that this is my second attempt. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Years years ago, back in the 90s, uh, I bought a piece of land up in northern Saskatchewan and attempted the same sort of thing, living off the grid. And it was a dismal, catastrophic failure. Uh, it basically <laughs> resulted in near bankruptcy and, uh, and uh, learning what not to do. Uh, there's, there's a few things I learned from that. Number one, if you're going to if you want to live off the grid, choosing a place is really important. And the most important thing is to choose uh, a location where you sort of know what's going on in the area. You're familiar with the area and that you have a community of people that you can, you can, uh, you can't do it alone. You got to have neighbors that you can uh, relate to maybe family or friends in the area. If you just go to a new area all by yourself, you're you're asking for trouble because you don't really know what you're getting into. And a lot of small rural communities are very closed off and they don't necessarily like foreigners coming into their area. <laughs> so I ran into I made every mistake that it was possible to make uh, the first time around. And uh, when it comes to the power system. Uh, the number one thing I would say would be lots of storage. Uh, you need lots of batteries. And this is one of the things that I think the world is finding out as they talk about going away from internal combustion, etc., and going into more what they would call renewable energy, is it's all about storage. Um, when the wind's blowing, wind turbines work great. And when the sun's shining, solar panels work great. But how do you store that power for when you need it? Um, I have a bank of 16 uh, lead acid batteries. They're 50 pounds each. So I got, you know, 1,000 pounds worth of batteries. And I could probably double that up. Uh, and storage is everything. So... Uh, when the sun's shining, I got more power than I can use. At night, you want to run a pump or a water pump or, you know, pump heat through your floor or whatever, that sucks the power, man. You have to have that, that ability to store it. And when it snows or when it's overcast in the winter for weeks on end, you need to have storage to, to make use of that power when you need it. And a lot of times, even the companies that'll sell you solar panels and inverters and power control systems, they don't know what the hell they're doing. They've never lived off the grid. They, they're, they're going off a book or something. They don't know what they're talking about. Uh, they want to sell you a windmill. They don't, they don't tell you that, you know, the wind only blows in, in uh, Calgary 15% of the time. What are you going to do the other 85% of the time? You know? I think I think a lot of that type of living too. Not that I've ever lived off grid, but I've spent a lot of time in places where 
you don't have everything you usually have is you have to alter your expectations too right and like when you only have like when you're collecting rainwater and you have 1500 gallons of rainwater you're very careful with that water right you you use it for things specifically and you alter and when you only you know like you know you only have so many so much power to go around you start to use it and you change your expectations and for me that's kind of the beauty of living like that is it's like it's, it's not all just there. You have to plan ahead. You have to sort of, of see it, you know, come in. And, it's, and you have to kind of temper your expectations. You know, when you're in a, in a cabin or a container shed, no matter how well built, when it gets to be like 30 below, you know, it's not going to be 75 degrees in there sitting in your shorts. But you're going to survive, you know. It's, you might have to have a couple extra layers on. And that's part of the, part of the, the beauty of it is like that, that being so, so in touch with – I equate it to like – when I started riding motorcycle pretty regularly, it, the difference between riding a motorcycle and being in a car is you could be going down the exact same road, the exact same speed, but your sensory input was so much more in the motorcycle because you were exposed to everything and you appreciated it more as opposed to you're just in a car that's like a shell and you got your music going. Being in a car, that's like living you know, in your house and you got unlimited power as long as you pay your bills and, and do those things and the water keeps coming. But when you get out on the land like that, you know, you're much more in touch with it, which I think is, you know, when it gets cold, you know, it's cold, right? You don't have to open the door. It's like, you know, <laughs> you know, and it makes you appreciate that, that water that comes down. And, and, and I think that when you start to live that way, then, then I think the land responds a little bit to you. I think that's probably why you have all that wildlife there because you're basically living on your terms, but, but more and more closely to those terms, as opposed to going out there, spending million dollars building a big old cabin you know running the power lines to it just basically building another home in town but with no neighbors i don't think you'd have the same amount of wildlife on that land and if you did you'd never see it right you ride bike tony yeah i do not as much as i'd like to but i do ride a good bit well you get it then yeah. uh when you're riding a bike uh you can you can smell those pine trees you know you 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 mm-hmm. you, uh, you ride past farm and you can smell the cow shit. You know, mm-hmm. it's uh, it's awesome. It, it's not like being in a car at all, and it's the same when you're living on the land. Um, I was just thinking today, one of the most amazing things about Serenity Valley is the seasons. So, uh, when I first built the container shed. I went out there, uh, I built it in the summer, and I thought, you know, I wonder what it's like out there on the on the shortest day of the year. And, you know, in, in Canada, of course, the sea, as I said, the seasons are even more, more uh, pronounced. So I went out there on December 21st, it was 30 below, and I had to walk in because there was so much snow that the road was completely blocked. And, and I walked in there at 4 in the morning, and I climbed up on my uh, on my solar panel um, uh, platform, and I waited for the sun to come up. And it came up about eight o'clock or eight thirty. And I made a note of where on the horizon the sun was. Then I came back in the afternoon about three thirty, and I made a note of where the sun set on the day of the winter solstice. Then I did the same thing on the spring equinox and then on the summer solstice and then the fall equinox. And 
of course, in Canada being at around 50 degrees north or so, it's very pronounced. Like if you look south from from that platform on December 21st, the sun rises pretty well, you know, like something like 16 degrees off straight south. It it traces a very, very short arc in the sky and sets 16 degrees from uh, straight south. But in the summer, it rises way behind you somewhere, goes all the way across the sky, and then sets way over on the other side. It's so pronounced. When you live in the city, you have no idea where the sun rises or sets. If it, if you know, people when they drive, they're driving to work in the morning. They might go, ah, shit, you know, the sun's in my eyes. Uh, well, that's because it's man. It's because you're. That's the direct, but they never think about why it is that way. But when you're living on the land and over the course of a year, you sort of get in touch with those things and you understand more about how the world actually works. Wow, that's interesting, Bob, because uh, Tony was recently here for an event we had with with some, with some of our contractors. And uh, one day driving home, he made comment. Actually, I think it was about the moon, actually. Mm-hmm. But it got us talking about this very thing, Tony. If you, that, that was you and I, correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he, he was saying like that. Well, I made the comment, red moon at night, sailor's delight. You know, and it got us talking about these, you know, these little sayings you hear about. And he said, like, wouldn't it imagine what, you know, we'll go out hunting or fishing, you know, things to gather food for life that we don't really need to do. We do it because we like to do it. And we do appreciate the quality of the meat and the difference of it. We're connected to that heritage. But imagine when it was life, life or death, literally, you know, like the First Nations or people that did that, they would they could say, oh, no point in going out tonight for this because of the way the moon looked or the way the sun looked like. And we were making comment of how we're just so not connected to that anymore. And, uh, you know, like the sign that are that that may be there right in front of our face for many things that. Yeah, I don't know. Did what do you what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, it's I, I think I think we are connected in extent. I think we just tend to ignore it a little bit. Right. Like there's you get that like. Like you're gonna go out hunting or something, or you know, and you just get a feeling it's not gonna be a good day. Right? You still go out. I mean, I still go out because I got time off. You know, it's my leisure activity essentially. I'm not hunting to because I have to. I'm hunting because I want to. And you still go out, but you know, it's not gonna be a good day. You just for whatever reason, you just sense it, and you know, it, and you can't really put anything behind it. I think there is sort of that sense. And then there's those mornings or those evenings, whatever, and you just like you're just on edge, and you just know it's gonna be. It. So I think you can be. I think it's. I just think we fail to recognize it for what it is um, in many respects. And I don't, because I don't think we have to, right. It's not, if I'm not successful hunting that day, there's still food in the refrigerator. You know, it's like, it's not, it's not a hardship, you know, it's and it's lack of practice, you know, like you don't, you don't practice it. You don't use it. You lose it kind of concept. Right. All right. Yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> yeah. But I think you can practice it though, if you want. Right. Um, 
you know, like just, just a direction. Like I, I don't like to be in a place where I can't tell where true North is and I'll, I'll try and geolocate myself because I want to know where's East and West. And I try and refer to things like, yeah, that's coming from the East side or the West side, not over there or to the right. And people will look at you funny. They're like, what? The? And I'm like, I keep looking at, like, you're looking at me funny anyway. So it's just the way it is, but, but to you try guys and are like, making a give yourself that, keep yourself in position, like on a, on a, a natural level, I guess you say, and it. I find life goes better for me. I'm more in. I'm just more in tune with things. You guys are making that deliberate choice, though. Mm. Years ago, like Dwayne and I go back a few years, a lot of years, <laughs> and uh, one of the first things Dwayne pointed out to me years ago when he first became an arborist or got into being an arborist was there's two kinds of arborists. Remember this, Dwayne? There's there's the oak man and the uke man. I've never forgotten that. Okay, the oak man is the guy that looks at nature and figures out what's best for the tree, what's best for the environment, and very carefully and deliberately brings his skills to bear to uh, bring those things into sync. Then there's the uke man that just comes along with the, uh, with the uh, um, bucket truck and a chainsaw and just lops the top off of everything. Right. <laughs> That's the uke man. So even in your profession, the arborists, there's two kinds of guys. Guys that want to be in touch with the environment and people that just don't give a shit. They're they're living in the city and they're just there to, you know, clear the power line and they don't care what it looks like when they're done. And even when you're hunting, there's a few guys around that really don't give a shit. I mean, if they yeah. if, if they wound the animal, that's okay. They're making more, you know. Yeah. But then there's guys like Dwayne. Uh, and I'm sure you guys are the same that are very, very careful about treating that animal with the respect that it deserves. And I'm not going to take that shot unless I am absolutely certain of a kill and we still make mistakes. We still screw up and we still miss, but, um, it's not because we're not absolutely deliberate and committed to, doing it right in, in Dwayne's case unless they're beaver then he'll just he'll just <laughs> fill them with <laughs> he'll just he'll just fill them with arrows <laughs> the beaver story okay I know the uh, beaver story yeah. but Tony what you were saying about no it's I don't I don't know about you but there's times that I go out there and this is probably tied back into being tuned out but um there's times uh, I can't rely on that. There's plenty of times that I thought this is just not going to be a good day in the woods, but I'm going out anyways, or I'm out in my tree stand and I go, ah, nothing's coming. I've been out here for hours. And then I stand up and move and the buck was 40 yards away looking at me and I, <laughs> you know, or I'm totally tuned out. It also made me think of how, uh, you know, I don't know if you guys have had this experience, but when I was younger, I was 
uh, really good with directions. You know, I could, I never get lost and I never had a GPS and I would go in the woods and I was always wandering around and I would actually, I remember being a kid, I would go into the woods and try to get myself lost just to find my way out. And then now I find my sense of direction is still better than most. Uh, but I, my sense of direction is not nearly as good as it used to be just from using GPS, you know, and they say that the part of the brain that, you know, uh, navigates is actually getting smaller because nobody's really using it anymore. So I think that's the same thing where, you know, you talk about the, the Native Americans and how they were tuned in. And for us, it's like we still have that antenna, but it's just a little rusty. We're not using it that often, you know, just because we don't have to because we have the creature comforts now of a phone and electricity and, you know, you're not as tuned in. So uh, I think it's still there, but it takes work. And, uh, and having a property like that where you are spending time with the land, that's, that's a dream of mine. I actually hear a lot of people talk about, oh, I just want to live on a farm and off the grid. And, you know, now... Uh, I don't think, you know, uh, it'll come to fruition and it's just a dream and, you know, there's a lot of hardships about it too, but yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and it's, uh, um, you know, the degrees or gradients of it, you know, there's living off the grid, getting your power source, having your own well, which are pretty fundamental heating, of course, but then you got food as well. Like you know, you think of that, I think of that series alone, you know, they're literally nothing. And when you got to fend for yourself for food, that's the one, that's a game changer of all kinds, right? Like, or what do you have to harvest your food with? Like we, there's certain things even in, you know, like Bob mentioned it, like the lights that exist now, the batteries, the, the cost of the ease of which you can make, like make the creature comforts work for you. You know, even getting food, like we have rifles, we don't need bow and arrows, we can, we don't we don't have to sit there and jump on them with a spear. You know, like like even that is is an immense achievement of, of humanity and survival, right? Like if you think about it, like you know, like I, even me, like I bow hunt and rifle hunt, right? And uh, it, there's it's a far greater challenge to getting out with a bow than it is with a rifle. You know, um, even with the modern bow. Let alone, I mean, I've, I've debated going real hardcore and going compound, you know, just straight, not compound, I mean, like regular recurve, you know, recurve. You got 45, you know, like really getting down to it. And there, you know, even that's a leg up because the technology of that bow is far greater than, you know, sawing off a stick and chewing on some cat gut and figuring out how to make, it, you know, the, the, the progression, right? Like, oh, what is really off grid and roughing it? Like, you know, <laughs> and where do you draw the line? Where do you really truly begin? You know, I got to I got to tell you a quick story about my my cousin from from upstate New York. Uh, I had never shot a bow before, and last year I went out and I bought a bow and I started practicing a little bit. And um, my my cousin is an accomplished bow hunter. He's uh, actually a sales rep for uh, in in his spare time for one of the one of the uh, uh, companies. But anyway, um, so I very proudly uh, sent him a text one day and said, "Hey, I bought a I bought a a bow and I'm starting to practice, you know, a little archery." And he texts back and he says, uh, "Oh, I see you got one with training wheels on it, right? Because uh, he's 100% recurve homemade." 
uh, birch, whatever, you know, hand carved. And I'm like, well, thanks. Thanks for the encouragement, Brian. You know, you got, like, you got to start somewhere, dude. And he's like, oh, no, don't get me wrong. I'm just giving you a hard time. But, but yeah, the clothes, you know, you, you, it, it makes a big difference. Uh, you know, getting, getting back to, to nature, to the basics is, uh, it, it's very grounding. It, it keeps you, it, it keeps you close to reality. Yeah. You know, speaking of which, I, I'd, I'd like to not, I, I, I'm just going to selfishly interject and make a request that you regale us with your recollection of the uh, hole-in-the-wall extravaganza. I, I, or I don't know if that's the best way to put it, but I, I would like to at least have it uh, for posterity's sake uh, on file, on record somewhere, a record of or an account of said event, which occurred in uh, 1992, was it? 91? That sounds right. How much time do we have, Tony? Well, we got all you'd like. We don't have no <laughs> okay. rules here. Um, well, I had been... Dwayne and I were, were living in Saskatchewan. We were married to sisters. And uh, we were very good friends back then. And um, we decided we were, we were going to go... The whole family, the whole extended family, probably 12 people, were going to go camping in the Canadian Rockies in uh, Lake Louise. And there was this place on, I had found this old map that showed a, a feature uh, near Lake Louise called Hole in the Wall. And I had sort of investigated it a little bit. And from the highway, you could see there was this giant cave way up in the on the mount on the side of the mountain and I thought man we me and Dwayne got to go up there we got to find this thing and get and get up there and so while we were on this family camp out we had made some plans and we thought we're going to go up there and and explore this so of course Dwayne is a newly minted arborist and he figures that he can climb anything so we we pack about 600 feet of rope and some carabiners and some other gear and uh, and i th i think i had spent one day with Dwayne climbing trees in uh, elmwood park in swift current saskatchewan one day so i figured i knew how to repel and shit so i could do this and uh, you know uh so we start climbing up we 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 leave at you know six in the morning and say to the girls okay we'll be back by four o'clock okay we'll be back and uh no worries we're just going to go climbing we told them where we we're going no worries so we get we get up to the trailhead and we hike in this you know we got our backpacks on and we got our rope and you know we've each got like 300 milliliters of water each you know and and you know an energy bar we figure we're golden and so we get up into this this rocky area and we're hiking around and we find all these really cool features like this big you know crack in the in the the wall we start climbing up this crack and we're doing all this fun stuff we find this bat cave you know and we're, we're screwing around all day and we still haven't found this cave that we've been looking for we're starting to think oh you know it's really tough when you're on the side of this you know vertical mountain to find out where you are anyway we we're looking around all of a sudden we see it okay we're, we're way too far to the west we've got to sort of scooch around 
on this these rock outcroppings to the east and so it takes another two hours and we finally get and we find this cave and it's a fantastic cave i don't know massive cave and we're screwing around there and now it's three in the afternoon or two in the afternoon or something like that and we're exhausted we've been messing around on this mountainside all day okay we gotta head home like it's two o'clock you know let's let's get going well it seems like a little bit too far to go to go back the way we came so let's just go straight down we just go straight down the mountain from here and you know we'll find our way out so we start heading down and we get to this sheer cliff and Dwayne says well no problem man we'll just tie off to this little stump here and you could just rappel down you know and then we'll you know we can do this okay so i rappel down about 300 feet and i and i get down to this little platform of rock that is like the size of a top of a file cabinet and and uh i'm standing there and he calls down he goes so uh, what's it like i said well you know it looks like probably another at least another 300 feet before we can you know find anything flat and he goes well we can just single the rope and uh you know you can go down another 300 feet i said okay so we do that and i slide down and i get to another little rock outcropping that's the size of a top of a cup of coffee you know i could sort of put one foot on it and i look down and it's like another thousand feet of vertical before you get anywhere so i call up and i go Dwayne, i think we're screwed you know like he said i said what do i do now he goes no problem he says you could just you could just hand over hand up that up that rope you know just you can do it man so I'm at the bottom of 600 feet of rope. And the only way up is to hand over hand. Like, and like, I don't know. I'm a businessman, like shit. Like, I'm fat. <laughs> you know, I don't know why Dwayne didn't do it. I mean, he sends me down this rope. You know, he's the arborist. Like, shit. What's going on? So I don't know how, how I did it, but like i hand over handed up 600 feet of rope like i i remember in eighth grade like i couldn't climb to the top of the ropes in the gym for the life of me but like when your life is on the line like you can do all kinds of, and Dwayne, of course at the top and when Dwayne's under stress he starts laughing like that that you know like the closer he is to death the more he laughs right and he's laughing he's going, dude come on man you can do it he's like the ultimate coach right but he's laughing his yeah. head off. So anyway, long story short, I get to the top of this rope and I am like completely bagged more than I've ever been bagged in my whole life. And then it starts hailing. Uh, this cloud comes over the mountain and we're getting these hailstones the size of the end of your finger, you know, and we're just getting pelted. We've been out of water for about two hours. Anyway, the only way back is to climb back up to the cave and go back the way we came originally. Long story short, we get, we finally get 
back to the tree line. Once you're in the tree line, you're okay because you're you got stuff to grab onto. <laughs> Dwayne is so dehydrated that he's hallucinating, and for whatever reason, I had a little bit more wits about me. We're going down this trail back to the truck. He keeps wandering off the trail, uh, babbling incoherently. I keep grab him by the by the the shirt, you know, and I keep him on the trail. We get back to the truck. We're both like at the end of our rope. And we got some water in the truck. Finally, we each drink a big bottle of water. And he and we both come around right away. If you've ever been dehydrated, like it's the worst thing in the world. You're as weak as a kitten. So the funniest part then is we drive back to camp and now it's nine o'clock at night or eight or nine o'clock at night. We're like five hours late. And <laughs> we drive back to our camp where the rest of the extended family has been waiting for us. The girls are hysterical. They've called the park ranger and there's like eight rangers there that are just put together a rescue team. Dwayne and me walk in to the camp and everybody's like, Oh my God, where have you been? Right. And like Dwayne's like, Hey, what's the problem? Like, you know, we had this, we had this man. Like what, what's your problem? We're only five hours late. And the, so the, the head ranger for Banff national park, which is like the number one most amazing park in Canada the head ranger for the whole thing comes up to us and goes, boys, we need to have a chat here. I'm going to take you aside here. And it goes, so where have you been boys? Uh, we said, Oh, we've been to hole in the wall. He goes, hole in the wall. Wow. That sounds like an interesting place. How did you find out about that? I said, well, I saw this old map, you know, he goes, uh, Oh, okay. Well, you're like experienced mountaineers, right? I go, Oh shit. No, this is my first time. Uh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> he says, you guys are effing idiots, and you are what makes it bad for everybody else. Guys like you are the people that make it hard for everybody else. He said, you, should, you guys should be stripped and flogged. <laughs> and, of course, I'm, I'm hanging my head in shame. Right. And Dwayne's like, you can't talk to me like that. I'm a taxpayer. <laughs> anyway, we apologized to him and we should have because we were completely over our heads from the first minute. Yeah. Then, of course, afterward, after we get dressed down by the park ranger, then we get dressed down by the girls, by our wives. <laughs> and, uh, I think to this day we probably really haven't lived down the shame of of uh, how how we made everybody worry. But all's well that ends well. One of the one of the best days of my life. <laughs> right, Dwayne? Yeah, well, it was. No, I remember that rope you climbed, and I remember because I was planning to join you, and you're like, "No, there's no point moving forward." And and I was like thinking, oh, "Shit." You've got to come back up. This is uh, wow. Okay, because it wasn't it wasn't uh, risk free. It you know it was 
And there was a, a couple times I remember, like when I was laughing, when I really, I could, like you were fading, like you were struggling, and, and I knew if he if he slipped, like he's gone, like he's not like he's dead. Like I knew that, you know, and like, and I could see how hard it was, and I'm sitting there trying to be as encouraging as possible, but you know, what do you do? Like you're in it. Like talk about forcing the moment. Like there's no point in advising that it's just Bob, you can do it. Like it would have been the last thing he heard, but at least he'd have been getting encouraged. (laughs) (laughs) I will say this. Is it, is, you know, you, you have to, Dwayne is the best coach in the world, the most encouraging guy in the world. And I needed, I needed that. I, I, it was a superhuman feat of strength. I could never have done it otherwise, and I don't know how I did it. But uh, yeah. it it's another example, though, of like no risk, no reward. You know, uh, yeah, it was yeah. stupid. Yeah, we were over our heads. We made every mistake in the book. But man, oh man, what an experience! What an incredible experience! It, it's one of those things that I'll never forget. You know, and, and we've talked about you know, making a, a much better educated duplication, you know, maybe like similar to your first experience in uh, living off grid to the way it went the second time. And, you know, planning would be a key element of that. You know, it, it's just interesting, Tim, you here, because you're an avid, you know, you, you go to great distances and places to take, spend time in the mountains. I don't know if you've been in the Canadian Rockies. I've been the, I've been the, I've been the Banff. Okay. So we may have seen Hole in the Wall. Or heard of it? Yeah, maybe. It, it's a uh, one of these days. A bit, I still would like to uh, venture. Yeah, we'll go back there. There's a much better route, and uh, you know we've researched it quite a bit since then. <laughs> I'll help guide you guys to if we'll get the right gear. When I was listening to that story, because I'm a, I'm an avid rock climber, I'm like, oh my god. I like this. Just sounds like every terrible story of like, and that park ranger was right. Like, holy shit, you know, like just going down there. Yeah, that's what we call. That's what we call in rock climbing is having an epic when you end up almost dying and just putting yourself in a situation where you climb off route. And next thing you know, there's no way down, and you're stuck up on the side of a cliff. And yet an epic. Every mistake. Every mistake in the book. Right. Yeah, and the best part is it's been immortalized in photographs because I, you were taking photographs of me both. I'm not sure, but anyways, we had a lot of photographs of of, at various stages through right to the hall and uh, Bob uh, pulled together that Christmas and it was gifted to me. Made one for himself and one for me. I still it's on the wall behind me. And, uh, you know, so it, it's a memory that safety blue was the rope, Tim. It was brand new at the time. <laughs> yes, we're carrying, you guys carried 600 feet of that around for a whole day. Well, you know, it wasn't that much, but it, we had, I brought a fair jag. But I yeah. don't think it that much, but, uh, and am I exaggerating the amount? I think a little, a little bit. Yeah. And that's okay. I mean, you do have every right to and deserve to, I'm not, I'm not in a correcting mood. <laughs> the best, the best tales grow in the telling. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. Correct. And then now it is a uh, uh, documented. So, uh, or, uh, I mean, uh, recorded. It's, it's recorded now. So it's 600 feet forever. 
<laughs> and that's why you guys were so dehydrated because you were carrying around 200 pounds of rope. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I'm sure I'm exaggerating. It was the longest one I had, that's for sure. And I don't think I had more than one. I think we just had it, but we did have and harnesses. I had a, a Blair Serapino harness. Like, we're talking tree climbing belt, man. Like, it was, it weighed a lot. Like, it's nothing. <laughs> And, and Bob had one too. We had a harness. I had made sure we wrote, and we had steel beams, man. Like, oh yeah, it was a tree climbing rig. It wasn't no mountaineering stuff. <laughs> you guys, just, let me know when you're ready to go it. back. I just swapped it all for another uh, liter of water. Or, or, <laughs> or I was waiting for the part of the story where you're picking up the hail pellets and eating them. Oh yeah, we did that. <laughs> we, we did that. Ball with them, and, and I remember it was there was chunks of gravel and rock, and and, and then we were chewing on uh, juniper berries for some sort juniper of berries. Too. Yeah. Remember? Oh yeah, Dwayne. Dwayne was all excited. He said, "You know, these are really rich in vitamin C." <laughs> <laughs> I just learned that last week. <laughs> I'm like, I could use me some of that. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, just just goes to prove that the uh, immutable fact of life is it's always better to be lucky than good. Always, <laughs> <laughs> always, it's it's, it's immutable. It's, 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 luck, yeah. good point, so Tony. Luck will get you through so much. Where skill, hey, you know, plenty of skilled rock climbers die. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, some, sometimes it's just way better to be lucky than good. Astute determination, to say the least. You know, it's funny. You know, you guys, uh, Bob, the manufacturing business. Where I first cut my teeth as an arborist, I was taught to use square diamond washers for bolting. That was it used to be a thing. I don't know if either one of you remember. Tony, you would remember that Mm -hmm. the square wash, the square diamonds, and. And they stopped making them because nobody was using them. But the company I was at was convinced that they were still the thing. And Bob said, well, we can make that. And they got to be cadmium plated. And he did that. And he came with to – and then at the time it was the new thing with springs in the cabling system to put a spring in for shock absorption. And that was, that was a brand new thing. And it was like 92. We went to San Francisco to the international conference. And Bob said, oh, we're going down there. I'll pay the way. It was my first international and Bob paid for it because it's going to be a business expense because we're going to research this market, right? And he was dead serious. I, I was really impressed with the, like, it was, and you went and interviewed and went to booths. I remember we came back and you're like, well, the diamond washers ain't a thing. And uh, <laughs> out of the curve there, buddy. But, uh, you know, my first experience at International you was because you wanted to research that. I, otherwise, I wouldn't have gone there. And, uh, you know, I, I became quite an We'll process later in life, but you guys, I don't know, Tony, were you involved in, I said, 90, in 1992 already? Or no, in shows? I, was, I would have still been in the service then. Right. Mm-hmm. right. I was so four. Was <laughs> <laughs> it's in, you have a terrific memory, you have a terrific memory, Dwayne. I had forgotten all about that, but that's true. But the thing is, that's how you build a business, right? Is you, you, you chase down every opportunity and, you know, a lot of them don't work out, but for every one that doesn't work out, one of them works out and you find a new market and you start building stuff for people, yep. you know, but, uh, and, and not only that, but we had a lot of fun down in San Francisco too. So uh, great. it was a great time. Yeah. And I'll always remember that too, but, uh, there was a lot of connections and, and, uh, 
Well, awesome. I'm really, uh, you know, we're, 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 we're around the time, like 27, we don't have a set time, but, um, you know, it's, uh, in preparation for ending, I suppose I want to just say thanks so much, Bob. It's a great story. Good. I always appreciated the way you tell stories as well. And it was really interesting to listen to your, your rendition, not only of Hole in the Wall, but even of, uh, off the grid stuff. Awesome. Well, it's my pleasure, you guys. Uh, I, I wish you well in your uh, podcast as yet to be named. And it's great to talk to like-minded people that understand the outdoors and uh, love, love uh, nature and, and wildlife. Yeah. yeah. And we don't have rules, so we can always have you back on again. In fact, it'll probably end up being like just 10 people that the only 10 people that really want to talk to us. And that's what we do. We just rotate those 10 people. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's it's surprising wrong with that. I'm I'm not, I don't have a problem with that. Men, we'll just call it the serial podcast or something. (laughs) Well, now my, my, my brain is turning where I'm like, nah, I should go find a piece of land. I'm like, (laughs) so maybe the next one, it could be like, I'll be picking your brain a little bit more of like what I'm looking for, what I'm doing. Exactly. Tim's going to be having all these guests. Hey, we need to talk to somebody who knows about solar power. Let's get them on. Hey. Awesome. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Seriously. It, I'm, I'm game I'm for that. For for we'll call it off the grid. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> okay, boys. It's my pleasure. Awesome. Let's talk again thanks soon. So much, thanks so much, Rob. appreciate it. Hey, thanks, Bob. It was great yeah. meeting you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye for now.